Well, uh, good to see you all. It's good to be here. And today we are actually finishing uh, our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. It has been a pretty quick five weeks. Uh, but this is also the final week of the story of God and his people. This has not been a quick series. It's been five years. And so I hope you've enjoyed uh, this journey through the Old Testament. Uh, this morning, I really hope we can bring some closure uh, to both these two amazing books that we've been in for five weeks and also this larger Old Testament story as well. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, our family, Alyssa and I, hosted the first meeting of a brand new small group in our church. We have a great group of young families that's just beginning to meet, and we had a great meeting. It was a lot of fun. We love our new group, but it made for a kind of a long, challenging weekend. And not because, you know, we had some really in-depth lesson or study to prepare, not because we had any problems with any members of the group, but because, of course, we had to clean our house. We had to spend the better part of, like, two and a half days cleaning, you know, like, tidying up all the little, like, spaces that, you know, just kind of get gross and dirty over time. We had to get the backyard ready. We had to, like, get on grace, and you have to clean up all the Legos because little ones will eat them if they're just lying around all over the place like they always are. And so afterwards, after this, you know, couple days of cleaning, and we get through the small group, it was great. Alyssa and I were kind of just debriefing and talking about it, and at one point she kind of looks at me and says, you know what, from now on, let's just keep the house clean. No more big cleans, no more like letting it get messy in like, you know, two and a half days, we'll just stay on top of it. We'll get really good at maintaining the house. And I looked at her and I said, I love that idea, let's do that. I'm in, sign me up, let's go for it. Now, I'll be honest, like there is some genuine hopefulness in this agreement, right? Like we both want to do it. We both believe that change is possible. We both believe that maybe this time will be different. But there's also, you know, a little bit of doubt. There's a little bit of cynicism. Because guess what? We have had that conversation before. Many times. We've had that conversation after every time we have people over. It's like, oh no, no more big cleans. Let's keep the house clean all the time. And so there's a little part of us that thinks, yes, we want to do it. Yes, the change would be good. Yes, we hope we can do it. But probably we won't. Because making the change stick is hard. And this mix of hope and cynicism is something that we are all too familiar with. And all kinds of walks of life. Right? You start a brand new diet or exercise regime, you try to break a bad habit. I mean, any New Year's resolution you've ever taken part in, there's a little bit of belief, there's hope, there's expectation, but there's also a lot of skepticism, there's doubt, because we've been here before. And so there's this sense that maybe it's not gonna work. And I think, look, if we're honest, we feel that tension sometimes, a lot of the time, maybe all the time when it comes to our spiritual life. Because there is a real desire to change, a real belief that maybe I can grow, maybe I can be the person I've, called to be, I've been called to be, but there's also the reality of where I've been and what I've done, the cynicism of past mistakes 
and failures. So there's this feeling that maybe I am just doomed to just always be this way and to always make the same mistakes over and over again. And so living in that tension is a challenge. We ask ourselves, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that we want to grow? We come to church, we hope we can grow, but we also maybe doubt a little bit that we can. Well, this morning, as we conclude our series, we want to address uh, this very question. Because in a lot of ways, this is the question that's kind of defined a lot of the Old Testament story. This mix of hope and cynicism. Can Israel get it right? Can they turn the corner this time, or should we just give up on the possibility of change? And we meet that question head-on in our passage this morning. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we we talked about uh, the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem and the passion and perseverance required for that task. And that was really kind of the last uh, of the, the things that had to happen for restoration post-exile. So they came back from Babylon, come back into Israel, and they first rebuild the temple. Then they reinstitute the law. And then last week, again, they rebuilt the wall. And so now with all these things completed, they're kind of ready to turn a corner, ready to reclaim their position as God's people, as people of purpose. And so after they rebuild the wall, there's this moment, this, this kind of time of celebration and commitment. They kind of stop and look at where they've been and look at where they headed and say, all right, things are finally looking good. Let's go. In Nehemiah 9, Ezra reads the law to the people and reminds them of the importance of obedience, and they eagerly listen. In Nehemiah 10, there's this time of confession where people come before God and they say, we want to turn from our sinful ways and towards God. And then in chapter 12, they dedicate the wall and there's this awesome time of worship and thanksgiving. There's all these different choirs that are singing and leading the people in praise. And so again, there is a real sense of hope in this moment. God, this time, right here, we're back. This time, it's going to be different. And so in our passage this morning, uh, as Nehemiah comes to a close, we'll see how things turn out. So as I said, chapter 12 ends with this time of worship and commitment. And then uh, at some point, it doesn't say exactly when Nehemiah leaves. And then he comes back to Jerusalem a time later. And so as he comes back, we see what he finds. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 4. It says, before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense." 
I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have faithfully done for the house of my God in its service. Verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, fig, and other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, one last thing, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Now, I know that's a lot. Uh, it's a lot to read. I thought about cutting out some of it, but it, it really, we need to see this whole picture. And I don't, hope I don't have to tell you this, but this chapter is really, really a bummer. Because as the story comes to a close, we see this one last snapshot of Israel. 
And what we find is them going back to the same mistakes that they have made over and over and over again. It's almost as if they just systematically go through every promise they've just made, every commitment that they have just made, every hope that they had for themselves, and they just toss it aside. Uh, the first account is of this priest, Eliashib. Now, Eliashib was probably the high priest, which meant he was responsible for the temple and for proper worship of Yahweh. And so one of his responsibilities, probably one of the minor ones, was to oversee these storerooms. That is, people gave their offerings and tithes. You know, they didn't have direct deposit or automatic withdrawal. They had to give actual things like grain and wine and oil. And so it all got stored in the temple area. And so for whatever reason, we don't know exactly why, Eliashib allows this guy named Tobiah to move into and live in one of these storerooms. Now, if that seems kind of like a strange thing to do, it really, really is. Because for one thing, Tobiah was one of the men who had opposed Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. So if you remember last week, we talked about this idea that these people came and they didn't want Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And they said, hey, we're going to harm you. We're going to kill your workers. We want you to stop. And Tobiah is one of these guys who is opposed to God's restoration plan. And for another thing, it's the temple of God. This is not like Eliashib letting Tobiah move into Jerusalem Hotel. This is quite a bit different than, you know, us having a sleepover at Cerritos Baptist Church for our youth kids. This is God's dwelling place where God is meant to live and it's kept perfectly holy because holy God lives there. And Eliashib says, hey, let's let one of God's enemies live here. Think about the, the symbolism of this. You know, every once in a while, uh, Mark Nagiyama, who goes to our church, he uh, offers me tickets to UCLA football games. And we're both UCLA alums and fans, or I guess he's a fan. I'm, I get excited about UCLA every two to three, every, every once in a while when they're good. So right now I'm excited about them, but I'll forget about them in two weeks when they lose to somebody. But what if God, Mark gave me some tickets? I took them, I showed up at the game, I sat down in his seat wearing a USC jersey, like an ugly red and yellow SC jersey. What if it was like a Matt Liner jersey, like one of the most unlikable players of all time, and I went there and I sat in his seats with that jersey? This would not just be wrong, it would be offensive, disrespectful. Mark would be horrified if I did that because it goes against everything that those tickets were supposed to be about. Now, in a much larger sense, to let Tobiah live in the house of God was not just wrong, it was offensive. Desecration is how the text describes it. And it is kind of a weird, like almost silly story, like you let this guy live in the temple. But it perfectly illustrates once again that Israel cannot stay committed in both their leadership and their people, they cannot stay committed to proper worship. But that's just the start of the problems in chapter 13, and there's a whole bunch of them. Israel broke the laws of generosity and justice. They stopped giving portions and offerings to the, priests, to the Levites and musicians who need that to make a living. 
People worked on the Sabbath, violating one of the most clear instructions from Nehemiah, or from Nehemiah chapter 8. We see them going back to these intermarriages with foreign women and continuing to be influenced by sinful belief and practice, which we talked about two weeks ago. And just to top it off, you have Nehemiah himself kind of going crazy. He beats these men who are intermarrying and he pulls out their hair. Now, whether or not his anger is justified, there's no sense in the text that this is okay, that this is good. This is iffy at best. And so in chapter 13, you really kind of have this, almost like this sampler platter of Old Testament Israel. Their failure to love God in genuine worship, their failure to love others and justice and generosity, their failure to be holy and faithful to God's way of living, the failure of even their leaders to stay on track. It's all here in this one chapter. These are the same old mistakes. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm coaching uh, Grayson's soccer team. Uh, this is not something I planned on doing. We signed him up. It was his first year playing. And I thought I was just going to sit and watch, be a dad. But, you know, some AYSO guy gave me the, you know, we need people to show up. We need volunteers. And I fell for it. So I'm coaching. I'm having a good time. I love the time I get to spend with Gray. But it's also kind of challenging because, you know, it's, it's six and seven-year-old boys. And God love them. They're, they're great. They're really fun. But at the same time, like, I don't want to make any assumptions about their character or their intelligence. But they are not, you know, the best at listening. They're not the best at following directions. They're not do the best at doing anything they're supposed to be doing or anything that makes any sense at all. They're just a wild bunch of kids. So you give them a simple instruction. And I didn't really know this was a thing, but my assistant coach helped me. When you, the goalie gets the ball, Everybody goes to the side of the field because we don't want people in the middle. We don't want the ball going to the middle. So we talk about this constant. We practice it. When the goalie gets the ball, we go to the side, not the middle. Well, the game comes. The goalie gets the ball. What do you think happens? They just stand there in the middle of the field looking at each other, chatting, you know. And so we, uh, we're at the side of the Go to the sidelines, not the middle. And they look at you like, what? I don't know anything about this sideline plan. Why didn't you tell me to do that? You tell them, okay, let's, let's keep our spacing. You know, when one of us gets the ball, let's spread out a little bit so that person can pass the ball. Right, simple, we practice it, we do it over and over again. Before the game, we talk about it. Game comes, somebody gets the ball, what do they do? They run right at that person because, of course, we have to cluster and just run around in a mass of 12 little boys. And you know, I don't really care that much about soccer, so it's actually pretty funny to watch. I enjoy it a lot, but it's also a little bit maddening because you're like, what are you guys doing? We just talked about this. How can you make those mistakes game after game after game? And we're 0-5, so I mean, it makes sense why. <laughs> but imagine how God feels watching this play out over and over again. And we feel this way a little bit as we read through the text, as you read through the Old Testament. It's like, how? How can we be doing this again, Israel? It's the same old story, the same sins, the same failures. 
But here's really kind of the worst part about it. This is how this story ends. This is it for the story of God and his people. There's one more book in the Old Testament narrative called Esther. And Esther is a great book. It's an important book, but it's kind of like a, a side story in this larger narrative. So when we think about God's overall journey with Israel, what he's doing with them and through them, his purpose for them, this is it. This is how the story ends with just one more failure. Now, as dissatisfying as this ending might be, I, I think there are two kind of words of encouragement that we can find in it, two truths that I think capture so much of not just what we're learning here in this passage, but what we've learned in the last five years of this series. And these truths will help us to understand this ending and uh, give us some insight into this tension between hope and cynicism. And the first is this, sanctification is messy. We've seen this over and over again in this series, that spiritual growth and obedience is often this hard, frustrating mix of good, bad, and ugly. And you know, as much as the end of Nehemiah does feel like a downer, there is something very honest about it. There's something real about it. Like much of the Old Testament, it doesn't present a picture of life and faith as it should be, as it ought to be, as we wish it could be, but it shows us people as they are. At the end of the day, what Nehemiah captures is the reality of faith and spiritual growth. For most people, there isn't a perfect, neat little happy ending at the end of our story. Most of us do not hear the call to obey, struggle for a little bit, and then push through and just figure everything out. Be holy for the rest of our lives. Most of us will not lay on our deathbeds thinking, I am a completely sanctified person. I made it. I did it perfectly. In fact, sometimes it feels like the older we get, the more sinful we become. The harder spiritual life is. And this chapter really captures this idea that there are ups and downs. There's moments of confession and commitment where we're like, God, let's go, let's do it. But there's also so many moments of sin and backsliding. There's moments of worship and joy, but there are moments of frustrating unfaithfulness. And I think this is close to what most of us experience in our own stories, if we're honest. It's hard. And there is some comfort in this reminder that your struggle is not the exception. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a failure. This is part of what the journey looks like. But at the same time, it brings us back to the question we began with. When we think about this picture, when we think about the messiness of sanctification, where is the hope in that? Should we just become cynical and say, well, I'm always going to struggle, so why try? I'm always going to fall back to some level of sin, so why not just give up? Last week, Pastor Donna talked about the phenomenon of quiet quitting our faith. And I thought that was such a powerful idea and such a great picture of what happens so often, that we kind of give the bare minimum. We do the least amount possible for so many reasons, maybe because we lack 
passion or we have other priorities. And I think a lot of the time, another reason for this quiet quitting that happens in faith is because of this cynicism about our capacity for growth and change. See, I think most of us and in most of our lives, we naturally pursue things that we're good at, right? We, we naturally want to do things and are drawn to things that make us feel good about ourselves. We avoid things that we struggle with. We avoid things that lessen our confidence and our feelings of competence. Uh, when I started skiing 20 years ago, it wasn't because I thought skiing was better than snowboarding or cooler than snowboarding or more fun than snowboarding. It was for a simple reason, that I got on a snowboard and I fell on my butt 20 times in a row and I said to myself, I think I'm done with this. I don't think this is for me. There's nothing fun about failing all day in the cold, wet snow. I'm going to do something else. And again, I don't think we're failing at faith, or most of us don't feel like we're failing, but I think if we're honest, if someone asked you, are you good at being a Christian? Are you a successful follower of Jesus in how you think, in what you do, in the choices that you make? I don't know. I would have a hard time saying, yes, for sure. I'm awesome at this. I think most of us have great intentions. We try hard, but we're constantly struggling. We're constantly falling short. We're familiar with this experience of coming to church, hearing a sermon, once in a while being inspired by that sermon and wanting to change. And we say, I'm going to change. I pray about it. I get all excited about what I'm going to do on Monday. And then all of a sudden, time just flies by. I'm back here on Sunday and nothing's changed still kind of the same. And so it goes against our instincts sometimes, and we feel this urge, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't keep investing. Maybe I should pour my, my time and my energy into these other things that I'm good at, these other things that make me feel competent and confident. And so it's important that we, we wrestle with those feelings struggle that we feel to give it our best, to give it our all, to not do the bare minimum. And I think the challenge and encouragement that God invites us to is we consider this messy sanctification in, in terms of the larger story, is that even though sanctification is messy and that will probably never change, God redeems the mess. That is what God does, that is what he has always done. Time and time again in this book and in the entire Old Testament story, what we see is that God calling and using people who are messy, who waffle back and forth between faithfulness and failure. And it's not just that he calls people who are messy, it's that he calls people who are messy and then are messy again and again and again and again. And he doesn't just call them, but he forgives them each time. He brings them back, he redeems them, and then he uses them in those moments of faithfulness. See, I think it's so easy to focus on the failure and the messiness when we read 
the Old Testament, when we read Nehemiah 13, when we read all these different Old Testament stories, it's easy to focus on the failures and the messiness in our own lives. To think about our spiritual lives and think about all the things we are doing wrong. But what God wants us to see is grace, is forgiveness, is redemption. What God wants us to see is that the one constant in their story, in our story, in every single page of this book is God saying, let's try again. Let's give it another shot. I know you messed up, and then you messed up again, and you messed up again, and you messed up again, but it's not over. You might have led yourself into a pit. You might have led yourself into a really difficult situation, and things are really hard now, but let's go. Let me pick you up. Let me walk with you and restore you. And even if you mess up tomorrow on the first step of the journey and you fall into another pit, I'll be there waiting for you. That's who God is. That's the focus of this Old Testament story, is not the failure, but the forgiveness. And I think when we think about sanctification, our own spiritual growth, there's an important nuance. The goal, really at the end of the day, is not perfection. It's not sinlessness. It's not perfect behavior all the time. Yes, we do want to see change, but the real goal what scripture is really inviting us more than anything else is to simply trust God more and more. Trust his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness, his power. Trust that he will pick us back up next time and the time after that and the time after that. Even if we mess up 99 times in a row, the one time we turn back to God and say, okay, God, help me. He'll be there. And he'll use that one time, he'll use that one moment of faithfulness to move his story forward, to accomplish his purpose in us and through us. And so that's one big part of the way we persevere. That's how we avoid cynicism, is not by looking towards ourselves, as hard as it might be, because life requires introspection, life requires reflection, but to focus first and foremost, on who God is and what he's doing. And this brings us to our second encouragement this morning, and this is kind of how I want to close out the message and close out this series as a whole. As we conclude our journey through the Old Testament, we want to see that this messiness that we've experienced, more than anything else, reminds us of how badly we need Jesus in our lives. Our messiness should always Point us to the one who is not messy, to the one who has it all together, should always point us to the one faithful person in this entire book, in this entire story, and that's Jesus. See, I don't know if the writers of Ezra and Nehemiah fully realize this, but this story and this ending are really pushing us to see a new way forward, pushing us to see a different way of doing things. Uh, if you remember from Ezra 1, we talked about how this whole story is written in the context of Jeremiah and this promise about God doing what he said he would do. This is all about God's faithfulness to his commitment to Israel. 
And so the author references this, and on one hand, there is just the physical return to ex from exile, but more than that, it's about this larger restoration. In Jeremiah 23, uh, the prophet talks about this future king, this future savior. And he says, this guy's going to be what Israel was supposed to be. He's going to do what Israel was supposed to do. And in Jeremiah 31, he says that this Savior, this Messiah, is going to change us from the inside out. He's going to write the law on our hearts. He's going to put it on our minds so that we could be God's people. And so Jeremiah, all along, as, as we think about Ezra and Nehemiah, he's pointing towards this dramatic change. This change that we're hoping for, a new kind of people. And I think what this disappointing end of Nehemiah does is it makes it very clear, 100% clear, that this kind of change will never happen by trying hard. It's never going to happen through some five-step rebuilding program. It's never going to happen by a super dynamic leader or teacher. It's never going to happen because we all of a sudden become different better people. The story does not end that way, and it's, they've tried over and over and over again. It was only going to happen, this change was only going to happen by God himself doing something bigger, doing something beyond what Israel, what God's people could do on their own. And so this failure in Nehemiah 13, as discouraging as it is, it proves that this promise from Genesis to Jeremiah to Ezra and Nehemiah, it all points uh, to Jesus. To us needing another way, to us needing someone to come help us, to us needing God's Spirit to change our hearts and minds. And that's how we understand Jesus' ministry. That he didn't come to throw out God's Old Testament plan and start his own thing. He came to finish God's plan, to prove that God is faithful, to prove that when God says to a people, I'm going to redeem and change and sanctify you, that he can do it because his promise is good, because he keeps his promises. Because when God said to Israel, hey, I'm going to make you a faithful people, I'm going to make you light and blessing, I'm going to help you bring my kingdom to this broken world. Those people might not have been able to do it fully, but Jesus did. Jesus was faithful Israel. Everything God promised to do in and through Israel, he started in Jesus, and he's continuing in the church. He looks at us and he says, hey, I'm going to keep my promise in your life. I'm going to keep my promise in your church. I'm going to keep my promise in your family. I'm going to keep my promise in how you love, in how you show mercy, in how you are faithful. And this doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're supposed to be perfect. It doesn't mean that messy sanctification is over and we don't ever have to deal with our own failures and mistakes. But what we do know is that even in that failure, that God will always be committed to us. And we know that Jesus proved that God is faithful to his promise to complete the work he started. And so as we finish out this series, uh, the reality is that we do have to live always in this tension between what is now 
and what's not yet. On this side of heaven, there's always going to be a little bit of messiness. We have a long way to go. We're imperfect. We fail. We make mistakes. That's the reality. But at the same time, it never changes the promise that's already been fulfilled in Jesus. What is already now here a reality for us? That God is working in you. Even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it, even when you, there's no evidence of it. God is changing your heart. And when you turn to him, even if it's only a little bit, even if it's only for a little while, God moves his story and your story forward. And so if nothing else, as we finish this series, what I hope you walk away from, as you think about this Old Testament journey, Every single person here, God has a role for you to play. And maybe you're, you're just starting off and you're thinking, no way, God couldn't use me. I don't know anything. God says, no, I'm beginning a work in you to inherit this promise to be my people. Some of you are thinking, no, 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 I've, I've done this. I've tried this before. I've been there, done that. It's too late for me. I don't have anything to offer. God says, no. I'm still keeping my promise in your life. There's still more for you to do. So as we move forward from this series, let's keep our eyes focused on who God is. Trust his promise. Trust who he is. Trust what he's done. And let's continue to work together. Uh, would you pray with me?